Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. I'm Stephen. And this is the Snotfield New Statesman podcast. Um, I'd like to start off by thanking those of you who listened last week will have heard that Stephen's cold. They will now be hearing Stephen's cold again, which has now lodged itself in my sinuses. Um, so it's pretty much just a, a, a misery. It's just a misery-filled catacomb in the uh, New Statesman podcast this morning. I mean, I'm actually... This I'm, afternoon. It's in the afternoon. Yeah, oh, it's I'm afternoon. actually feeling all right, to be honest. I've still got a cough, but I think I'm, and I'm sounding... Less nasal? I mean, from, yeah, it's, it's a low base, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't sound nasal at all now. I'm, I mean, yeah, but there's, there's like the, my usual level of nasal, and there's the, oh, wow, Stephen, you're bunged up level of nasal. And yeah, I'm just saying. I'd say you're at maybe like 5.5 AORDs at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm coming back down to, you know, the usual. Resting one. baseline. Yeah, my, my baseline nasalness. Um, but, um... <laughs> talking of people. <coughs> Talking of people who weren't ill and were talking without being nasal, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. We just watched his speech. Uh, I confess I had a conversation and missed 10 minutes that appeared to be close to the end, but I don't feel like I missed anything. So give me your snap judgment on it. I thought it was uh, far and away the best speech in terms of delivery than I've heard uh, Corbyn, Corbyn give. I know, obviously, I've heard... A slightly dispiriting amount when I think about the total percentage of my life over the last two years of being Corbyn speeches. But, you know, kind of when I think about the speeches I saw him give at the various regional receptions, then I did my kind of level, kind of uh, combination of come on, please do me a solid. And then, do you know who I am? I'd like to clarify, I have never, ever said, do you know who I am to try and get oh, him to you it. have said do me a solid. That's alarming. Um, but um, I, I feel the same thing about that. I watched one of the rallies. I can't remember. Uh, it was in Kilburn. It was one in Kilburn on Facebook Live from the start. Yeah. And it, 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 it would have... I tell you what, it would have definitely benefited from an auto cue because there was that rambly bit at the beginning about the, the media haters, so yeah, we're against us. And I know that this is a different sort of type of speech, a much more formal one, but actually the formality and the structure of it, I think it reminded people why most people don't just speak off the cuff, right? It was just, it was just better. It, it had a, a start, a middle and an end, and it had some jokes in it. There was one joke about, you know, the hall's packed, but not virgin trains would say there are 880 seats left. Um, you know, it had some decent policy, policy bits as well. Yeah, and it, and it, it had a lot of what, a lot of, as, as I've bored listeners on before, the reason why I prefer the word Corbyn skeptic is it captures the breadth of that opposition 
And in terms of the winnable Corbyn sceptic chunk, about 100 uh, of the PLP and probably, I reckon, maybe 20% of the, of the total membership. And actually, I, I reckon there's a level of, oh, I like the ideas, but um, I'm not sure about some other things that I think voted for Corbyn because they were so unimpressed by Owen Smith. And I think in terms of that constituency, it was a speech which is exactly what those people have wanted. It used kind of... U- relatively accessible language to talk about left-wing policy it did things like tried to refrain paying taxes in in terms of patriotism and doing the right thing for little businesses which do do the right thing etc etc um it had a definitive position on immigration um yeah i think that's one of the most striking things about it i mean there are two ways that you can go with immigration and that's what we've seen at labor party conference you've seen the sort of Rachel Reeves, Chukra Moon, Emma Reynolds, wing of the party, uh, Stephen Kinnock as well, saying, you know, freedom of movement is over. Uh, Although can... you still have, like, Liz Kendall, Pat McFadden, Wes Streeting, who are still like, no surrender, we've got to stay in the single market no matter what. Yeah, but that's the, you know, that's where the big divide is. Or, yeah. I mean, so you can take two approaches to the fact that, you know, the Brexit is a fact and and, <coughs> and, and we're not going to indulge this sort of Hannon-esque rewriting of it being about sovereignty when I think, you know, a huge number of voters were motivated by what they thought was a referendum on border control. So you can either say, well, look, we have to acknowledge that, or you have to say that's a misconception and we're going to fight it. And Corbyn's clearly gone the other way. I mean, let's face it, that speech had a lot of debt to Owen Jones in it, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It was... Um... There was a lot of that, you know, it's not Polish nurses that brought down the financial crisis, it's the bankers kind of stuff. I mean, it felt very Owen-y. It, it was very Owen-y, which was, was striking, because uh, obviously he is very much not, you know... He's not inside... He's, he's sort of he's semi very... in the tent, isn't he? He's not really in, inside the tent, he's but clearly they like read the designated him. smoking uh, smoker loitering outside of the tent while someone else is trying to do the barbecue inside, going, you shouldn't be doing that inside the tent, take it outside, and has in some ways been a slightly peripheral figure. Uh, but yeah, it was very much kind of what, what he's been calling for. I mean, the... The thing I find interesting... Less what Paul Mason has been calling for, but this is the thing I think is kind of interesting if we navigate it through the kind of... You know, it wasn't a, I'm going to deselect them all, you know, you know, come with me or it's the end of your careers, toots, it, kind of... It also didn't have what if you wanted to... Cause where, because the, the interesting thing about putting Labour on an election footing... And, I mean, yeah, it would be fascinating to know how many drafts it went through. There were... One of the things which happened at this conference was that uh, the... Uh, the leadership lost its majority on the NEC. Um, Which means that in future rule changes, like those endless rows we had over the summer about whether or not Corbyn should automatically go on the ballot, those things are harder for him in, in future. Well, yeah, it's it's now hung because the um, Corbyn sceptics uh, decided that it was worth more to, have, to hold the chair. Yeah. And to lose their majority of one, right? So they had two options. You either elect a chair who's a pro-Corbynite and then you've actually got a fairly stable majority or you go, right, we we give it up. In their view, uh, and and as a Labour rules geek, my my instinct is they're right, is that uh, you are better off with the chair because you can then rule on on procedures, whether or not something's out of order, etc, etc. Whereas if you have a situation where the other lot have the chair and you have a majority of two... You can vote can against things, things that they put up, yeah, but you do, kind of... Yeah, they, they run the show. The, 
and also the Labour, um, the Welsh Labour. I don't know. Is that going to be Carwin Jones is going to definitely? I know Kezia Dugdale's taken the seat for Scottish Labour, but there is a possibility that Carwin Jones can nominate someone else, or he can nominate himself. Do we know which that will be yet? Uh, so I, I spoke to Karen at some length on the Monday. Um, he obviously, I, I visit Wales a fair amount, both for here and because my partner, who I'm uh, contractually obligated to mention at least once every podcast, uh, he went to university in Wales. Um, and um, he is going to appoint someone because he has to run the government. He's yeah, got stuff to do. Yeah, fair. Karen doesn't have the time for these eight-hour eight meetings. Is that how I should be pronouncing it? Um, I, I'm not sure. I've only started pronouncing it Karen because a lot of my Welsh Labour sources do, and I wasn't sure if they were discreetly trying to correct me. Okay. Because the problem is, because Welsh people are so nice... Right? Anyone else would just be like, Stephen, what are you doing? It's not called Carwin. He's not a competition. <laughs> but instead, they just kind of very softly say Karen. And you're like, I think maybe that's that. But but they also have a... They're nice, but they also have like a sense of humor where they try and trick you. Wow, I'm sounding like John Redwood. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I'm worried that they also might have been a thing where they're like, let's see if we can persuade Stephen. And it's to call him Karen. Karen. Yeah. Um, well, but, maybe no, I can ask sure. listeners to, to write in and, yeah. and definitively. Well, if we have Welsh listeners, if Stephen hasn't in previous podcasts... <laughs> insulted you away then um, um, please do tell us whether or not we're mangling uh, the Welsh First Minister's name but he and he, he was integral to it passing partly because he has been so one of the, the slightly difficult things about covering the party is it it, obviously, it has a democratic it makes you want to die constitution but not a democratic culture right so so the Welsh and Scottish parties have been asking for this for a long time it, it was I mean not a big part of, of Karen's bid to become leader but you know it was it was it was one of the items and what has happened yes this is undeniably true is a chunk of the english party has decided it is pro that in order it, it to... knocks out corbyn's yeah. uh, majority however one of the things i think that the leader's office got wrong in its approach to opposing it is that they alienated a lot of welsh people who had voted for corbyn and a lot of the kind of because Owen Smith very much, he, he was the candidate of part of the Welsh establishment, but there were also people in the Welsh establishment who really wanted him to lose. And I think a lot of those people, felt, yeah, so in the meeting, obviously, Karen can, can attend, but he cannot vote. Uh, and when Jeremy tried to deny it, he said, yeah, we, yeah, this has been delayed for two years. You've kept us waiting yeah. for years. This has to happen now. The Welsh Unite, uh, there was a, a bit of a revolt in, in the Welsh Unite section. So it, 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 I, I think that we might look back if uh, the Corbynite position on the NEC further erodes in the union section and think, oh, maybe actually if they had found a way to lose with, with Grace, which is very much where some of Team Corbyn are on some other issues. So, OK, but, look, but, look, but look, before we come to, I mean, undoubtedly thrilling though the composition of the NEC is, and it is, let's just quickly whiz through the recap of the rest of the conference Sorry, for anybody. Sorry, I was getting a bit anarchy there, wasn't I? <laughs> I felt... I felt that you might start talking about standing orders, and I, and I thought I'd have him stage an intervention. Um, conference started on Sunday, of course. Well, it started, there was women's conference on Saturday, and the re-announcement of his glorious Jezinus's ascension back to the throne, re-ascension to the throne. Uh, Sunday was mostly notable for the New Statesman Party, uh, which a good time was had by all. And then uh, Monday, we... Not quite by all. Matt Chorley, who writes the second best morning email... The first best is, of course, mine, which you can find and subscribe to by searching Stephen Bush Morning Call. No, Stagger's Morning Call. I'm an idiot. Stagger's Morning Call. Just I think your name's in it too. It'll be fine. Yeah. People will find it. But um, um, let's finish with calling out in our safe space. Uh, he was very mean and said that our booze ran out very quickly. 
To which the only obvious answer is, well, you shouldn't have drunk so much. Well, you only shouldn't have drunk so much, but also, you know, where's my invite to the Times party? Where's my puppy? Maybe it's ended up in my spam folder, like Redbox does from time to time. Oh, oh you did! <laughs> it's fine, we'll get away with it. I mean, we got away with all the, the phrase of nastiness that you've previously advanced, so it's, we're, you know, I feel our listeners are tight. They're not going to dob us in. Um, uh, yeah, but, okay, so Monday we had Emily Thornberry's speech, um... And John McDonnell, which was a really interesting speech because it uh, it was Theresa May-like. Uh, John McDonnell and Theresa May might not agree on very many things, but they do agree that, um, and I'm going to use a word that I think is used very sloppily, but here it probably is actually the right one to use. The era of neoliberalism is over. The era of free market fundamentalism, of not feeling that you can interfere in globalisation, is over. And he talked about, you know, wanting a state that wasn't afraid to intervene, about the winds of change we're now blowing against um, globalisation talked about you know something like the chinese steel crisis happening on his watch you know he he called out those governments that didn't protect themselves against the chinese dumping cheap steel on the international markets so a, a rare moment of kind of unity between the uh, tories and the um and labor on that one then Sadiq's speech, which I didn't watch, but I think that the only thing you, if anyone asks you about it, you, the only thing apparently you have to say is, he said the word power a lot, you know. Did he say anything else that wasn't the word power that was interesting that I missed? No, he basically went... Holla, winner, winner! Yeah. winner. <laughs> that was the other kind of... The, one of, one of the, the other side of the is one of the things that Karen has loved doing for a long time is he's loved going, hey... I'm do, you know most... bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. do you know which bit of the Labour Party ro- still runs something? This bit. This guy. Bring it here. <laughs> and now Sadiq is running around doing exactly that. <laughs> What's got two thumbs and governs London? This yeah. guy. And uh, and yeah, you can see them it kind of... Obviously, he's you know very glad that, that Labour are winning again outside of Wales. But you can feel that it also kind of tweaks him a little bit. Um, and then we had also Tom Watson's speech in which he said basically uh, something, I think, which was interesting that this went down quite so well with the activists in the you know we shouldn't have spent the last six years slagging off our record and i think that's a you know that is that was a a debate that was happening even you know as it was uh, as that last parliament Mm. was going on okay right right. so i'm going to say a couple of of, i have a couple of choice observations about tom watson's speech i was very unhappy that i had foolishly not taken my copy of ed balls's book Right, and or indeed. Okay, just do you want to? Can I interrupt you and say I saw Tom Watson outside the Pullman Hotel late at night on Sunday, and I swear that I saw Ed Balls as well. And apparently, Ed Balls was not at conference due to his intensive strictly training regime, which means either there is like someone who looks exactly like Ed Balls, or your cold made me hallucinate Ed Balls. I think it's more likely, um, seeing as a lot of people on the on Labour's old right look very similar. <laughs> That, uh, it was another burly man. It was, yeah, I mean, yeah, like they, they, yeah, they're all they're all fairly burly, aren't they? Right. It feels more likely than it was another burly man than than I've given you an hallucinating cold. Um, It'd be worse things than hallucinate than Ebbles. I thought he looked very good. I really liked the thing that he wore in Strictly. Do you see? He wore the suit, but he, it was like a suit but sequined. I'm not actually watching uh, Strictly. Oh right. Well, um, I bet you're probably watching. You know, you're listening to Radio Three probably because you don't understand. You know. Um, in your Islington, in your North London, in my North London granola townhouse. house. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, anyway. so going choice observations. Go cuss out Tom Watson. So, just so to Tom really Watson says, "I don't understand this. why we spent six years uh, 
uh, slagging off our record in government. Tom Watson not only voted for the candidate who ran on that platform in 2010, Ed Miliband, he was decided, there are, there are a couple of people who can honestly say, you can honestly say they are to blame for Ed Miliband becoming uh, Labour leader. One, of course, is David Miliband for not having the wit to do a deal with Ed Balls, and the only deal he'd have done would have been to offer Ed Balls the thing you'd have needed to offer him anyway, the job of Shadow Chancellor. Um, so, well done, David Miliband. Um, Ed Miliband, of course, for running. Um, the Len McCluskey and Paul Kenny for uh, fixing... Funding him. Uh, ...the GMB and, and Unite's uh, arrangement. So and, actually, David Miliband, again, for insulting and irritating so many Labour MPs. And lastly, Tom Watson. The, the crucial uh, group were people who voted Ed Balls 1, Ed Miliband 2... And there was an informal arrangement organised by Tom Watson to do that, to stop David Miliband becoming leader of the Labour Party. And we also shouldn't forget, you know, I've called out a vet for this in the past, Tom Watson was another one of the people who wanted to put Corbyn on the ballot to hurt Andy Burnham, right? Now, it is great... In, in which task it, they succeeded. Yeah, it's true. Admirably. It, it, it is great that these people are now trying to stand up for uh, a type of Labour Party that they agree with. However, they ultimately did... Their, their whole political strategy was to demonise other people who did that and have this idea that as long as you controlled the shortlist, it would be fine. And then they forgot that fundamental truth. And now they're in a mess, right? So every time everyone goes, oh, brilliant, Tom Watson going, how did we get here? You, you, Tom, you're how we got here. Good. That was some... That was that was the yeah. That was the second angriest that I've seen a man sitting next to me after Chukramuna, who was also pretty angry at sat next to me at a um uh, an IPPR fringe on Britain and Europe and then went on a, a massive rant and I can say that it was a rant because he concluded it by going I'm sorry I've just had a massive rant um uh, about the fact that, that Brexit wasn't um discussed on the conference floor. And it wasn't really massively addressed I don't think in Corbyn's speech there was some uh, gesture towards freedom of, of movement and, and, and how he wouldn't be one of the people who was kind of calling for curbs on that. But that did seem a strange kind of omission from... I, my, I like Okay, so here's my here's my takeaway on the speech. I, I thought the speech was good. I thought it was certainly the best speech I've ever seen him given. Uh, it was pretty competent um, and had some funny lines in it. Um, but it felt like the last swallow of summer, if that's a I don't think that is a metaphor. But you know what I mean? It felt like, like this is my last time in my happy place talking to people, feeling that, you know, feeling the love and saying the things that I need to say before I've got to go back to the mean old real world outside. And that, that just felt a tiny bit self-indulgent. If it had been in a situation where the members were all really unhappy and the primary job of that speech was to cheer up the members, that would have been a great speech to have given. But they... I mean, the members are all really unhappy. Mm, but I don't think that speech will have... If you... I, are they? Are they? Yes, actually, I, I, I think that the, I, I think on the whole, um, the thing I found interesting is so the world transformed, which was momentous event, was 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 significantly sparkier. It was very surreal because it certainly reminded me of a certain type of one of my mother's friends in the early nineties. Uh, but um, yeah, it was it was a bit sparkier. But actually, the, you know, the people around the, the leader were a bit flat because they've just fought an election. Mm. Uh, activists on both sides are a bit exhausted, I think, because of the feeling it was a foregone conclusion that had gone on for a very long time. And 
MPs I found were, I mean, generally there was a sort of sense of, even among people who were pretty opposed to Corbyn's leadership of just, you know, weariness and acceptance of defeat. But, you know, normal people seemed quite G'd up. But then maybe I, maybe this would just... Maybe you're just more of a draw than I am. This is my electrifying effect on the uh, on the fringe discussion about trade rules after Brexit. Um, yeah, I don't... I, I, yeah, okay, so maybe... Uh, may, I don't... I, my worry is okay. My worry is we're going to lapse into what I call what I think of now as Nick Clegg syndrome, where you accept all the things that are you know obvious downsides of a candidate or their position, but because they're boring to kind of say, well, those things are still true. Everybody tries to desperately seek a sort of slightly different narrative and be counterintuitive, and I think we'll go through a phase where people will kind of go like, oh, he's done really well. Oh, this is really good. Oh, this is really good, and actually, kind of, it becomes sort of boring and conventional wisdom to say the things that are you know boring and conventional oh, you wisdom. Can, you can see the lobby already doing this, mm. yeah, with Nick Robinson's. We should actually think really seriously about whether or not he can become prime minister, and we should do that because mm. he is the candidate to be. You know, he's the leader of the major opposition party, and we should give his policies and positions the scrutiny that they deserve, as if he's going to be. You know, he's one of only two people who could end up in Downing Street after the next election. Yeah, and I think you know, as I've said before on 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 the podcast, and one of the things I think lots of journalists, myself included, got wrong was we didn't cover the Tory manifesto in 2015 as a document that was going to form the basis for single-party government. Yeah, and exactly um, the same thing. There might be some ruinous version of, of Brexit. We might have some terrible recession, and actually something happens, does a deal with the SNP, and it, it could, you know, it's not... Lots and lots of things are the ifs, if, 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 if. But it's, you know, it, it still doesn't mean that you can just kind of go, oh, that's boring, I, I want to... But I just don't like this sort of constant, like, we're bored of saying this thing, so let's say a new thing, which seems to be somehow, so often how political journalism works. Yeah, I agree. Although I also think that you've sort of got to assess people by the targets they've set themselves, as it were, right? So to take, say, yeah, so for example, was the twenty Labour's 2010 election campaign good or bad? Well, it was excellent because... They knew that they were going to lose, and their aim was to do better than yeah. It was to do better by by maximum by you know you know having as an efficient a vote share as possible. And their aim in Scotland was to avoid a repeat of what was already happening in Holyrood in the uh, in, in in Westminster. And they um and and they achieved those outcomes. Whereas to take the twenty fifteen example, right? What were they they what were they aiming for in Scotland? They were aiming to hold twelve, right? Mm. So they failed. Failed. Pretty yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, they they failed by you know quite quite a very high percentage. I'm still seeing too coldly to work out what percentage. Um, um, okay, that makes sense. I think that's but so Corbyn's tar- a target that he set himself was a million Labour members, right? There's this idea yeah. about he wants to build them, and that's the that's the rubric that maybe we should we should judge him by. I think the new shadow cabinet will be interesting. I think that um, it's you know Andy Burnham has now departed or will depart, ready for his um, his run at the Manchester mayor election. I'm sure um, Angela Rayner will get a big promotion. They've been pushing her very heavily as she's currently at schools. Um, she's got a really interesting life story. She's you know she's quite a straightforward talker. I think she's got a lot of promise and then then there's an opportunity to bring back you know a few of the i think jonathan reynolds has talked about the fact that he would serve again yeah. um i, I know your your <laughs> your friend of mine charlie faulkner is i think probably would who seemed to be the like the totally carefree you know yeah. like little simba running around uh, westminster but inexplicably is the sort of last blairite standing but i'm sure would go back in oh yeah no de- charlie would definitely go back into the uh to the to the shadow cabinet. I mean, I think the thing is, so there are a couple of, of there are sort of three types of people who will return, right? There are people who have got tricky selection battles, 
Um, there are, and there's some overlap between these three groups. There are people who didn't think it would work, but sort of felt they had to, because, you know, the thing it's always important not to forget is it's also like any other workplace. If someone's mates are doing something, people are more inclined to be like, well, even if I'm not sure if it's going to work, right? You know, yeah. you, you kind muck in. Yeah, you should kind of muck in and try and sort of try and help your mates out. And the third group? And then the third group is people who really, really want to be ministers, shadow ministers. There are just some people who, who just really like being, you know, the shadow minister or whatever. Or there is a... One of the advantages of the fact that it is going to be a bit of a cobbled together thing, Robbie, is that there are people who have all, who really care about one policy brief, right? Well, that, that's they... what I was going to say that because I was going to say someone like Lucy Powell's in an interesting spot because if, as I expect, Angela Rayner gets moved into maybe a higher profile role, then actually the obvious choice really is Lucy Powell, who's done really good work on grammar schools, is clearly still really passionate about that brief. I don't know whether or not she would go back in. But that is a kind of, I mean, you know, when you say people who just really want to be ministers, it sounds quite craven. But you're right that sometimes sometimes it's people who just like being important. And sometimes that's people who there is one policy area that they really, really care well, yeah, about. So Chionwara is a, a, a good example. Um, I don't really know what the situation, I know that for a while John Trickett wanted to do slightly less because he's, you know, getting on in years etc etc uh but um i'm not sure what the situation with that at the moment is in truth uh but if shadow biz became uh up for grabs that's always been chi dream job and so there are people who know culture is their dream job etc etc and so you can kind of see how that will work and also that way they don't have to talk about any of the policy issues they disagree uh with with with, with him on so you'll kind of so so that those will be the three groups and will, will okay um, well, that's um, I, I'm, who knows when the shadow cabinet re-elections, uh, and, and not re-elections, uh, reshuffle will come. I am at the edge of my seat, uh, and of course, next week we'll be back to talk about Tory party conference. Hopefully, both of us will be better again. We can, but hope. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's Pop Culture Podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now for a segment called You Ask Us, in which you ask us. You can always get hold of us on Twitter. I'm at Helen Lewis. Stephen is at Stephen KB. Or on Stephen's Facebook fan page, where you can also post, I don't know, GIFs uh, and fan fiction. Uh, this week, uh, I have a question from Satish Berry, uh, who says, Hi, Helen. Hi, Stephen. I was wondering whether you believe Labour should focus its energy on ensuring there is a referendum on whatever Brexit deal Theresa May obtains, or whether they should accept that we're leaving the EU and focus on ensuring it is as soft as possible, so retaining access to the single market and free movement, um, along with the holy grail of determining the curvatures of our own bananas. So, uh, yeah, let's, um, let's have a chat about that. Um, I have a strong opinion on this. And my strong opinion is... People have voted in a referendum at a time when trust is very low in politics. And if you go, <laughs> lol, joke, we weren't really actually going to leave the European Union, that would be crazy, um, then I think that's only likely to poison the well of, of, of democratic debate further. I can see, if I were the Lib Dems, I would too would, produce, I would pursue the Lib Dem strategy of... 
uh, we go on a referendum on the deal and then the two options on the ballot paper are take this deal or stay in the European Union. I think that for their supporters, you know, the, the percentage of supporters they want to get to, you know, they're not, there's no, I can't, are there Eurosceptic Lib Dems? Is there such a thing? You know, they're just, it, it makes sense, right? There are yeah. people who are Remainers who are angry about Remain and not reconciled to the result and they can pick up those people. For Labour who want to try and get to, you know, ooh, remember when we talked about the 35% strategy, like that was a really low bar for Labour. Um, you know, they want to get to 35-40%, then they do need to be seen to accept the referendum decision. That's my own personal feeling. Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to be dull and wonkish. Yeah. Which is going to be a shock to our listeners. Um, the difficulty is, is so I think that the advantage of a second referendum on the deal is that the gulf between what was promised and what people voted on and what emerges will be fairly large and its long-term effect on British power and influence and general prosperity will also be fairly large. My instinct is that a second referendum would be lost, partly because it's not clear to me who would lead the other campaign. We now have a Labour leadership which is explicitly committed to leaving the single market. They want to retain access to the single market, which is this new thing that people who don't really understand the concept of the single market say, right? Everyone in the whole world has got access to the single market. Yeah, it's like the new thing about reforming free movement when we were still in the EU. It's like, okay, well... You don't understand how that works. um, But my feeling is, is is that people will be very angry about that. And I think it... And, you know, who do people tend to take their anger out on? Sometimes the establishment... The worrying thing is in lots of places where people will be angriest, the establishment is the Labour Party. So that is less helpful. But actually, the depressing thing is that's the best case scenario. Ten- people often tend to blame um, ethnic, social and cultural minorities. So I'm kind of in favour of a second referendum on the deal just to so actually people have been bound into it. I think that that's... Um, but I think But then you and I have got our, you know, our theory about the early election which now seems to be kind of conventional wisdom at Labour Party conference right yeah and and you make the deal part of your manifesto you know you say well, actually this is we're going to go for this and then you put it it's the, it's in the Tory party manifesto and then you get a majority on that and that's essentially then the same as a second referendum uh, except that there's no op- there's no option for people to vote for the bit that involves staying in. Actually, weirdly, I was on a panel at a conference with um, Anon Menon, who's um, a professor at King's College London in European politics, who said one of the things that it's unfair on the rest of the EU to do this hokey-cokey, actually. That's one of the big reasons about saying you can't say that you're going to leave and then go, ah, actually, we're coming back in again. Because that's, that is, you know, if we care at all about the rest of the EU, we should not try to destabilise it like that. But also, once you, the, the thing is, is, the deal happens once you've triggered, triggered Article 50. Once you've triggered Article 50, you, you've left, right? It, it's kind of a bit like saying, should I jump out of my window and then when I hit the ground have a vote about whether or not to break both my legs? Uh, yeah, actually, the moment you're in the air, the, the, the floor, the floor, the floor is calling. Um but yeah. I think that, I, I and I said this at our live podcast on Saturday, and I will say it again there, on freedom of movement, I am genuinely, I don't know what I think. By the way, can I just say, having chaired a lot of panels at Labour Party conference, uh-huh. the audience at our live podcast has proved my theory that the two loveliest groups of people in the world are people with BT internet email addresses 
and our podcast listeners. Oh, that's nice. What about, um, you get a lot of these writing into our letters pages, people with BT internet addresses that are theirs and their partners. Yeah, they are they're always like... I like, you know, Jeff and Marjorie at btinternet.com yeah. always fills me with a kind of, oh, thank you, Jeff and Marjorie share everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I so I, I, I think that, I don't know, I, th- I think... I think the problem is that any discussion of immigration is just it's just gets into this toxic place straight away where half the people are saying, well, no one will let us talk about immigration, despite the fact we talk about immigration all the time. The other half um, instantly think that, you know, it's a, it's a, just a capitulation to a, a right-wing tabloid agenda to have anything, like to have basically any borders at all, right? I think it's really hard to have a, have a sensible discussion in the middle of that. But this is actually something that I do blame the Parliamentary Labour Party for, right? So one, one fringe I did was with, um, was with the, the excellent Roger Scully from the University of Cardiff, and they and the University of Edinburgh have done a study of voters' attitudes towards Englishness, immigration, devolution, the general settlement, how they feel about the various parties. It is really grim reading for uh, the Labour Party, and you know, as I said in my response, I said the difficulty is, is I can work out what Labour would need to do to win, but unfortunately, I don't want to do any of those things, and, and I'm kind of stuck at that point. Yeah, but- well, I wrote this. I wrote this column about nationalism, and I put it out, you know, on Twitter today, saying, you know, if there is this gap in British politics for someone who talks to English people about English nationalism, you know, if Labour won't fill it, someone else will. And people took that as an endorsement of kind of English nationalism as a force. And you're like, well, it's not, but it's clearly there is something, you know, the Labour Party's got to kind of either grapple, has got to grapple with that in some way, right? Otherwise, it's just going to lose those people to UKIP, which is not an outcome that presumably the Labour Party wants either. Well, yeah, I mean, but the thing I found really interesting is because I then said, you know, my, my, my overwhelming impression from from the from these academics was, it was and I said, you know, clearly... Corbyn, Corbyn, Corbynomics, as it were, can win an election. It just has to be coupled with a series of policy stances, which I find fairly revolting. Incredible scepticism towards immigration. You know, uh, I mean, actually, I'm really fine with being authoritarian about crime, to be honest. But you know, uh, uh, and um, and you know, and kind of wrapping itself in the in the English flag, which again, I'm sort of fine with. Uh, and then you know punitive language at least on on welfare which i'm really not okay with but that kind of is one of the things where it's quite clear from the from the numbers and we had a really interesting conversation where you know all of the actors when you show them the data acknowledge the problem and we all kind of acknowledge it's really difficult to work a path forward but you know when when harriet decided to send that signal then labor was a soft touch on welfare the this is when she decided to abstain, abstain on the second on the, reading. On the, uh, well, on the second touch, reading. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, that was the first time. The, 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 you, you, kind of, you can't not give people all of the information you have when you make a decision and necessarily expect them to accept that you've made the decision for the right reasons. So I think some of the reasons why, the, why Labour is where it is is that, you know, if you treat people like children, then they... They scream and yeah. throw the plates of dinner around the place. Yeah, yeah I think that. I, I mean, I think I think Europe is a particularly tricky issue because you've got a PLP that is much more Europhiliac uh, than um, the leadership, and you've also got a membership that is, you know, broadly pretty. Pro, I mean, very pro-European, right? So it's just a, it's a, it's one of those ones where Corbyn's records so far of being a much more skillful political operator than people give him credit for, at least within the arena of left-wing politics. You just imagine he wouldn't. He's just not going to say anything. I don't know. So I think the thing is, is now we've left, and in terms of the economic agenda, not being in the single market means you can be much more interventionist from an economic perspective. 
so I would be surprised. They also have a mandate for it. I mean, they had a mandate last time for it. I'm afraid this is just where I, I still just do lose patience with this argument, right? I'm, I'm willing to accept that uh, some people, um, including uh, Danny Daly, who asked a very good question at our podcast, which we will eventually be able to put a recorded version of the live version once King's Place uh, sends it over to us. Um, yeah, I, I'm willing to accept that people can be both pro-European and vote for Corbyn, but they have made a decision that their opposition to yeah, they like Corbyn more than more they like Europe, and yeah. their, their he affection won't be... for the European project. And you know that's that is life, right? That people make those trade-offs all the time. You know, yeah. lots so, yeah, of businesses I... voted for a dangerous referendum on the EU because they were worried about Ed Miliband's mansion tax, and well, that's worked out great for them. I know. I do laugh a bit when I look at the FT front page and I see businesses complaining about you know about the, the impact of Brexit on them and you think yeah it's really weird now just to see a Tory party that's picking a fight with business that's yeah. you know after five years of being told that Labour were you know terrible danger because they crashed the economy anyway that's us devolving into one of our pre uh, pretty well-worn rants there so maybe that's a, a good point to, to wrap up but thank you for your question and please do send us any more that you have Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.